0: Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm
1: Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. The 2018 Farm Bill is starting to get some press as Congress has begun working on it. And everyone's been pretty skeptical this winter about getting it passed because we all remember how long it took to pass the 2014 bill. But that bill did have some pretty significant changes implemented. So joining
0: us today is a relatively new hire into the OSU Department of Agriculture, Environmental and Developmental Economics. Ben Brown manages the farm management program in the department and has been following farm policy closely, including the farm bill. And we really appreciate you keeping us up to date um, as things change. So the current farm bill expires on October 1st, Ben. Um, What options does Congress have?
2: Yeah, so coming up, uh, you know, leading up to this, we had kind of heard rumblings, especially on the House side with House Chairman uh, Mike Conway, Republican of Texas, uh, that there was even the possibility of getting a farm bill passed in 2017. Um, that was his goal. Uh, he kept repeatedly saying that, you know, we'd have it done on time, before time, uh, with even the possibility of getting it done a year early. Uh, here we are in, in 2018. We're getting later in the calendar year. It is May, but I mean, we're getting later in the calendar year. Uh, the current farm bill is set to expire October 1st at the end of the budget year. So the fiscal budget year ends um, the last day of September. We start a new one uh, come October. Uh, and really, it's, it's kind of in this, uh, I'm going to call it a, an exciting period in terms of farm policy, right? Because we've got things coming into play, uh, things are changing very quickly, uh, but we've also got this hard deadline. Uh, and as a reminder to folks, you know, farm bills are amendments of permanent legislation. Uh, the, the farm bills in 1939 and 1948 uh, serve as our permanent legislation. And so if, if nothing new is passed, we revert back to our permanent legislation. A couple of big things that Play into that. We didn't grow very many soybeans in in our in the country in the 1930s and 1940s. In fact, very very few. And so there's not a soybean program. Uh, there is you know uh, some some loan programs here and there, but there there really isn't a soybean safety net program like what we know today. Uh, and then the other big thing is is the marketing programs around milk and dairy. Uh, when we were doing the 14 Farm Bill, as Elizabeth mentioned, when we were doing the 14 Farm Bill. There was a lot of hurdles. Uh, one of the things that kept coming out of that one uh, that was a big issue was, uh... if nothing was done and we didn't do an extension milk prices on the shelf at the grocery store could get upwards of thirty bucks uh, i haven't seen any estimates yet this year but we are still faced with a very similar thing if we if we do nothing if if congress does nothing will let the current farm bill expire and we revert back to our permanent legislation uh, you know we we don't have a soybean program and our milk prices at the grocery store would, would substantially go up for consumers uh, so that's one option to do nothing revert back to permanent legislation um, another option is uh... to pass an extension. And that's what we largely did this last go around. Uh, the Farm Bill that was supposed to be the 2012 Farm Bill uh, made some big significant changes to the wheel. Uh, we got rid of the direct payments, the direct decoupled payments that farmers have received since the 1990s and 1996 is when those first came into play. And then we replaced them with with counter-cyclical programs in the agriculture risk coverage and and the price loss coverage program. Uh, There was a couple of things that played into that long and lengthy period. Uh, There was big disagreement from non agriculture districts and non-agricultural legislators uh, as to what the safety net should look like. Uh, There was difference among commodity groups, especially your Midwestern commodities and your Southern commodities. So like corn or corn and soybeans versus peanuts and rice there was there was big differences there. You saw differences in the Senate and you saw differences in the house uh, And it wasn't just a Republican and a Democrat debate I mean we saw uh, rural uh, districts and urban districts. we saw moderate Democrats that were that were in the mix. Uh, and and so it was a lengthy period. Uh, the farm bill was set to expire in 2012. We ended up extending it a couple of times all the way into 14 when we got a new bill, right? So we can do that again this year. The the farm bill is set to expire um, here in, at the end of this year in October, October 1st, and we could do another extension. Whether that looks like a year, whether that looks like two years, um, you know, that'll be up to Congress. And and so we could do an extension. That's the second possibility. The third possibility is to pass a new farm bill before the day. Um, and obviously, I think that would be preferable to everybody uh, and we we would love to have something it, it reduces the uncertainty around farming uh, we've got farmers all across the great state of Ohio they're in the field right now planting crops getting ready for the season Uh, It is nice to know that for at least their programs, right, so the program year, even though the farm bill expires in October, uh, the marketing year for these commodities extends all the way until September of 2019. Um, So at least the marketing year, so the crops are going in the ground right now. We at least have the, the understanding of the rules, if you will. If we get much past October... we don't have any farm bill, we're doing an extension, Uh, we've got people starting to make decisions, right? In in agriculture, we've got farmers that buy seeds early, they take advantage of that that cash price option to buy seeds, right? They're gonna be buying seeds for the 2019 planting season, Uh, which then doesn't have a program year, right? And the program year would start at the end, and it would go through, and that's what we don't have. And so as we get closer to when farmers are making decisions about next year's plannings, that's where some of this uncertainty will come about. So um, I really see three paths forward, you know, an an extension. I see getting a farm bill done this year, and then, you know, if they don't do anything, we revert back. So those are really the three options. Um, I think the most likely option is is the extension, a one-year extension. Uh, And It could be something to where, uh, you know, in this lame duck period, right, so after the November elections uh, into the winter months, uh, we have a conference committee, Uh, we might have a chance to move something there. But right now, we're moving later in the calendar year, later in the political season, right? This is a year divisible by two, so all the House districts are up for re-election. And a third of the Senate races are up, or Senate seats are up for re-election. And so we're getting later in the year. Here in July, a lot of them are going to be returning back home to their districts to campaign. Um, so our window to get something passed this year before the deadline is is really quickly approaching and, and is really starting to get squeezed, to be honest with you. And so um, you know, I think Extension is, is looking more and more likely all the time. Um, and we'll, we'll just see what happens. So. All right.
1: So, Ben... How you spoke about the elections coming up and that that making it likely that they're going to go with an extension option, Um, but how do those elections play into how the farm bill is going to look?
2: Yeah, so just a little bit of a, a recap, kind of where we're at, um, at at this point. Um, we have uh, the the House representatives have released their bill, and it has passed it has passed the Ag committee in the House, um, and it is, it is waiting for a floor vote in the House of representatives. And that's kind of where we're at. The Senate hasn't released their bill, uh, and um, you know, but potentially for it any time now. Um, but the house, the house is kind of sitting there waiting a little bit to see if they have the votes to make sure they have the votes to get the bill through the house. Uh, this this bill in the house is um, it's more bipartisan than we've had in a long time. Uh, and and or excuse me, not bipartisan. Excuse me, partisan. It's more partisan than we've had in a long time, uh, especially on on the Republican side. On uh, Chairman Conway um, led a lot of the negotiations. Uh, said has said that him and uh, ranking Member Colin Peterson, a Democrat from Minnesota, um, had talked through some of the process, and then when it came time for a committee vote, uh, the Democrats were largely unhappy with the bill, and uh, that was presented to them in committee. There was uh, very little discussion around the the bill um, in committee because the Democrats felt that it was a pretty unworkable bill, and um, they didn't offer any amendments. Uh, and then there wasn't a single vote of Democratic support um, for the bill. Uh, and so the the bill passed with solid Republican vote. It's not expected to get many Democratic votes in the, in the House. Um, and so you're starting to hear rumblings. The Democrats at least uh, feel like there's a decent shot that they could regain control of the House um, in the November elections. Um, and so you're starting to hear rumblings from people saying, hey, if we can if we can just extend the Farm Bill past November, you know, at least on the Democratic side, we have a chance to write a bill that's more favorable to our likings, right, um, and, and change some of the things that are currently in the House bill. Uh, the Republicans are, are accusing the Democrats of delaying the process. The Democrats are, are saying, hey, you did a bill without really our input and our support. Uh, we want to change that and make it a little more favorable to, to our interests. Um, and so... When I, when I think about this November's election, you know, depending on where we are at that time, if, we, if we've got a farm bill through both houses, we're in conference committee, you know, maybe the elections don't really play into it that much. If we're still kind of sitting here kind of like a stick in the mud, you know, just kind of like, you know, we know it's coming, we haven't got an agreement, we're still maybe back in each chamber, right? We don't have a bill passed in either chamber. Uh, you know, There is the possibility that the November elections could, could change the, the look and the, and the feel, if you will, um, of this Farm Bill. Um, in no way, shape, or form do I know which House is going to reclaim the, the majority, but I do think that the Democrats think they have a decent shot at claiming the majority and retaining committee leadership uh... and and they're thinking that they have a good chance to write a bill that's more favorable to their interest and when i say more favorable to their interest one of the one of the key issues that they have um... with the with the current house bill is around the work requirements to the the supplemental nutrition program which some people remember that as as the old food stamps program uh... you know the house bill uh... this go around uh, calls for stricter work requirements for snap recipients Um, It requires almost all adults under the age of 60 um, and then adults um, even with children now, um, above the age of six, um, to work or be engaged in a training, uh, a work training program, at least 20 hours a week. And so, um, the Democrats feel like that's that's going to roll a lot of people off into, um, you know, extreme malnourishment and and encourage or not encourage, but increase hunger across the country. The Republicans are, are saying, you know, this is a way to get people to work uh, and and basically shrink the size of, of the program cost. Um, and so there is some disagreements. Uh, that's that's kind of the big one. There's others, but that's kind of the big one, and, and the Democrats would really like their chance to, to reform that, uh, maybe a little bit more to their liking. But it would be the same case if, if we were sitting here and the Democrats were in control and the bill looked different and the Republicans felt that they had a chance come November to, to win the election. you know, they, they might be trying to push it a little bit further until after the election. So, um,
0: yeah. Yeah, Matt. We've seen that a lot with politics these days, it seems like. So with the introduction of new programs in the last farm bill, do you think there'll be a lot of changes to the programs um, for this new one?
2: Yeah, so in, in 2012, and, I, and you're going to hear me reference the last farm bill a little bit, and part of the reason why is is every once in a while about every let's say 20 years 20 24 20 years uh you know we've had these big reforms to to farm bills, mm-hmm. basically, uh, the last time it was in '96, 1996, uh, where we re- introduced the direct decoupled payments, uh, where where payments were based on historical plantings on a land, on a piece of land. Each each piece of land had a certain commodity associated with it. Every year, Congress assigned a payment that went with the different commodities. And if you owned, you know, 100 acres of of base acres of corn, you, know, you got the payment that was associated with corn. No matter what the market price, no matter what you raised, I mean that it was it was truly it was it was decoupled, and uh, it was based on historical plannings. Uh, the 2012, what ended up being the 2014 farm bill, we we were in a time period with very high farm incomes across the country, and historical we we haven't seen that um, ever, and uh, there was a lot of pressure uh, from non-farm legislators, uh, legislators that rep non-farm districts or states, um, of why you know farms were getting very high farm incomes from the market, but then also getting these direct decoupled payments on top of it. Um, and, and it just kind of became politically unstable, um, impossible to retain those payments. And so uh, Congress revolutioned again. We reinvented the wheel. Um, we got rid of the direct decoupled payments. We went to the two programs, the PLC and the Art County that I mentioned earlier, and um, and that's, that's what we're working on right now. Um, a couple of things, uh, the reason I, I I would be surprised, and everything that's leading up to this right now, is that those programs are going to remain close to the same as what they are now, with maybe some changes, some improvements, um, some adaption to current times. But we're not going to see the total reinventing of the wheel like what we saw on the last one, uh, just because... People are still tired, it was a long process, people are still tired, um, and generally people are happy with what they have. Corn and soybean producers across Ohio, um, the programs made payments when we needed to make payments and you know, really kind of helped level out and stabilize farm revenue, farm incomes. Um, the big issues was in cotton and dairy. Uh, cotton was left out of the farm programs because of a lawsuit with Brazil on um, anti-dumping in a trade case with the World Trade Organization. They Brazil won the case um, and so cotton was given their own program. It was called STAX it was their own program uh, and it, it largely just didn't work the way people had hoped it was. It was very much an extension on a crop insurance plan um, and it just really didn't work and so cotton producers just really felt that they got left out of the 2014 Farm Bill. The other big one was dairy. Um, so the new MP, the margin protection program that we got in the 14 Farm Bill uh, was, was again a revenue plan. Farmers had to sign up and, and pay a premium to get into the program uh, and the premiums just weren't large, or excuse me, the payouts that farmers received just weren't large enough for, for farmers or often enough for farmers to, to pay a premium to enter in the program, and so, so very few did, and it was almost irrelevant um, of a program. And so both groups, Cotton and Dairy, were, were very unhappy with their programs that we had um, in the 14 farm bill, and they were really largely driving the push um, for a new farm bill this time. Corn and soybean farmers are, like I said, they, they were getting payments when we needed them to get payments. You didn't hear a lot from Southern commodities either in rice and, and peanuts. Um, especially not peanuts. Um, peanuts did very well in the 14 farm bill. Um, but Cotton and Dairy were leading the charge uh, and they wanted to do something for that. Earlier this year, in January and February, we passed a new budget bill for for what is the 2018 budget year, which was supposed to start in October 1st of 17. And so we kept doing these little I call them band-aid bills, but what they are, they're, they're extended spending bills basically for a couple of weeks at a time until we could pass a longer spending bill. Um, And then finally, in in February, we passed a spending bill. Uh, One of the things that that spending bill did, not only did it keep the government funded for the rest of the year, but it also created new funding for cotton and dairy in the farm bill. Um, And so up to that point, if we were going to go in, reopen the farm bill, and make some adjustments, uh, there's a certain baseline funding that the farm bill has to remain under. And so if you were to increase the payout or the dollar amount to one program, it comes at the expense of another one and there was large disagreements uh, one of the one of the possibilities was to increase cotton and dairy at the expense of lowering corn and soybean payments um, by coming in with a new budget bill um, it provided a new it provided new money um, about a million or excuse me about a billion for cotton um, and and a couple hundred million for for dairy um, and it kind of fixed the, the the issue that some people had with the programs but what it did the big thing that it did was it really lessen the the dissatisfaction with the current bill? So, you know, at this time, you'd expect to hear a lot of people saying, "Hey, we need a farm bill. You know, we need we need a fix, and we need a safety net, and we need we need support." Um, it's very silent uh, around the country. Um, people are happy. Diary and cotton kind of got a fix, um, and so I really don't honestly don't see a lot to change in this one. Uh, mm-hmm. If if there there could be potentials, obviously Congress can do whatever they want, um, and there are disagreements, especially on around the two programs. The House seems to favor the PLC program, whereas the Senate favors the ARC program, or the ARC County program, um, and so there there will be disagreements, and we could end up with a compromise and a conference committee if we get to that point. But I really honestly just don't see a lot of changes, at least to the commodity titles. Um, we could see. Uh, I'm gonna kind of jump to a conservation reserve program for just a second. Mm-hmm. Um, in in periods where we see low prices, and and I'm gonna go back to the 2014 farm bill for just a second. So in the 14 farm bill, we had high revenue across the country. There were high prices associated with a lot of commodities, um, and. Some farmers got stuck in the trap. I don't, I don't want to say trap. Trap's not the right word, but they were in contracts with their land for the Conservation Reserve Program, which which tied their yeah, land yeah. into a into a contract for ten years to leave it fallow. And uh, while they were getting compensated at the at the average rent for the county, right, it was largely still below what farmers could make for, if they were actually planting and raising a corn and soybean crop. Um, so there was actually pressure to lower uh, the CRP cap. Um, we, were, we lowered it to 24 million acres in, in 2014, which is the lowest it's been since the program started back in the 80s. Um, it continued to go up, and then you know, the high prices kind of kept dropping it down. Uh, we're now at 24. We're capped at 24 million acres right now. This farm bill, I think, will increase it, right? We've got low prices. Uh, one of the ways to combat low prices is lower supply. Um, and and so if you're putting land, taking land out of production, putting it into a conservation program, one, it makes your your wildlife and gaming people happy because they've got more land for, for you know, birds and, and pheasants and everything to hunt. Um, it takes land out of production to help raise prices on lower production. Um, but the one thing couple of things that it does that you know, are on the other side of the coin is you're taking land that had traditionally been lower quality lower margin cheaper ground uh, and that's what young farmers and ranchers have traditionally cut their teeth on uh, they've, they've been able to buy that and get started in farming if you're if you're increasing the cap that's taking land that far, young farmers and ranchers starting out could potentially buy the other thing you're doing is you're lowering your own production as a country we're lowering our production as the United States uh, but Brazil, Argentina, Russia, especially—you know—they're not lowering their production, um, but they're getting the higher price. And so we're providing kind of an umbrella, if you will, for for Argentina, Brazil, and Russian producers on the on the higher prices um, from the CRP. So there are some negatives. There's some drawbacks. The other thing is, how do you pay for it? Mm-hmm. Um, You know, they do have a couple of ways, at least in the House version of the bill, to pay for that. One of them is, is as you take land out of production, one, you're not getting the crop insurance premiums that the government kicks in. You're not getting the commodity payments that, you know, the PLC and, and Art County payments that come along with it. So that is freeing up some money to help pay for that set-aside program, um, but it's not quite enough. And so one of the th- ways that the House bill worked to address that was instead of being, you know, uh, an average, equal to the average of the county and rental rates, they dropped it down to 80%. Um, and so the current rate as it stands, now this could change, but the current rate that it stands in the House bill is for 80% of the county average uh, would be your CRP payment. But it does raise the limit up to 29 million acres, um... Again, that's that's largely we can kind of expect that given the the negative correlation with with prices, commodity prices. So,
0: yeah, um, I've been wondering about that because we were pretty close to maxing out those acres um, at the end of last year, immediate bumping up against that cap, right, the twenty-four million, and. Um, I think some people were thinking there might be some of those, with those contracts ending, some of that land coming back into production, but with current prices, I don't know what those predictions are, if there's going to be a lot of land coming out, if they're waiting to see, or if they think those contracts will be renewed.
2: Yeah, so you bring up a great point, and and you're right. Last year we were under the cap, but we were really close. We were really close again this year. We were sitting, I think it was like $23,900,000. I mean, we were really close to the cap. When that cap went in place in 2014, it it was there. I mean, the cap was there, but we were still like 28 million acres across the country enrolled in the program because they're on contracts, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've got to wait until some of those contracts start coming off, you know, to to work that land down. So we're just now, actually, just now getting down to that cap of 23 million. And and you are right, like uh, you know, so the last couple years, and we've been there, we've been at the cap, we've maxed out the acreage. and you're right. I mean, the, the returns per acre for commodities uh, have been low. I mean, it wasn't just that long ago that many places around the country were receiving a negative return for corn. Um, in fact, that was just two years ago for some parts of the country We're receiving a, a negative return for corn. And, and um, you know, those were largely that could have been land that was in CRP if, if the program had been extended. And, you know, there, there are possibilities. And but you know we see that we are seeing the price you know the the price decline from the last couple of years and farmers are thinking that CRP could be a possibility. However, we are starting to see a little bit of a rally in prices, and, and so how that'll figure into farmers' decisions, um, you know I, I love farmers. I work with them all the time, and, and I wish I knew what the, what they thought. But um, you know it'll it'll be a farm level decision, and and you know if they choose to enter into that. You know, that uh, if they feel like there's a benefit to entering into a contract for CRP and and basically taking away the opportunity for prices to really rally um, and then to receive the, the high benefits again, um, you know, that's kind of what they're banking on. They're trying to estimate, okay, over the, the lifetime of my contract, what do I think commodity prices are going to do for the next 5, 10, 15 years? So, um It'll 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 depend on a number of things, but we can. I mean, the historically CRP land has been focused on poor quality, cheap land uh, that maybe was in. I'm going to call it wind erosion type places. So Western Kansas, Iowa, high, highly erodible land. Um, CRP traditionally hasn't had a focus on water quality. Um, as as we know here in Ohio, we do have. Uh, you know, an issue with, with water quality. A lot of people seem to think that that comes from runoff and, and different things, and, and, you know, it could be interesting if Congress wants to, you know, put an an incentive, I guess, to improve water quality, and one of the ways they could pro- possibly do that is putting an emphasis in CRP registration around land that, that drains into lakes and streams, and, and, and we could see more CRP registration here in Ohio, which we, we haven't traditionally had. We... we while we have acreage in Ohio enrolled in the program, it's not near as high as some of our surrounding states. Well below Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, um, but we could see we could see an or an increase if they make that a priority of the
0: program. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess I haven't followed that or paid attention. That I mean, I see CRP around, especially along um, some of those floodplain mm-hmm. areas. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see if we get more here in Ohio compared with other states.
2: The other thing is, I mean, it's right. There's there's an the amount of money that you have for, available to the program, and mm-hmm. and land in Ohio is not cheap. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's you know, do you wanna do you wanna enroll ten acres in Ohio in a program, or do you wanna have the chance to enroll you know maybe a hundred uh, in Wyoming mm-hmm. or something like that? Um, and so they play those games too. And so land prices and land rental rates will will definitely figure into the equation as well. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Ben, over the last year or two, there have been some concerns about cuts to crop insurance. Um, What is the latest on the potential for for changes to crop insurance?
2: So, crop insurance, uh, I feel, is always kind of caught in this, uh, um, I don't want to call it crosshairs, because maybe that's not the correct term, but, uh, you know, crop insurance is is disliked by members of the far left in the in the democratic party because they feel like it is an unfair subsidy to, to farmers in relation to a homeowner right uh, so you don't get a subsidy for your, your insurance policy for your car or your house um, it's also disliked by members of the far right um, people that you know the same people that are out to, to make changes and reforms to the nutrition title also really don't like crop insurance and so crop insurance uh, gets kind of attacked on both sides. It's not liked by the Democratic Party. it's not liked very well by the, the right wing of the Republican Party. and so it, it continues to face challenges. I mean like to save it. Um, a couple of the, a couple of the proponents' arguments for, for crop insurance is, you know if you and I are driving a car uh, and I get in a wreck, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a wreck. I mean, the probability of you getting in a wreck really doesn't change. But if you and I own fields, you know, a mile apart, and I have a severe drought, you know, the possibility of you having a drought is also, I mean, it changes, right? There's, there's a greater possibility. And so, you know, for proponents of, of crop insurance subsidies, one of their things is, like, um, for affordability purposes and, and just the, the vast scope of, of the range that hailstorms or droughts or floods affect, um, there's got to be some type of safety net. Uh, and the discussion all these years has, has always been on, you know, not necessarily should there be a safety net, uh, with crop insurance being the safety net, but how big should the holes in the, in the safety net be, if you, if you will. Um, currently, our national average for, for crop insurance premiums from the government is 62%. I mean that for every dollar that comes in to a crop insurance program, the farmer kicks in 38% or 40% if I'm rounding up, and the government kicks in 60 That's not every policy because there's different ranges and, and there's different choices, but the average, the national average for, for all the programs is 62%. Um, there's a lot of people that would like to lower that number, including including the administration. Uh, Mulvaney, the, the budget director that uh, used to be a uh, congressman from uh, North Carolina, um, he he was uh, very much in favor of, of cutting the crop insurance program. And you saw that in the president's budget the last two years, so the 2018 budget he called for removal of the harvest price exclusion. Uh, then he went in, uh, he spoke at the American Farm Bureau conference in Nashville this year, got up and said, you know, I am a big proponent of crop insurance, we're not going to cut crop insurance. Um, Just a couple weeks after that, you know, his budget came out again and it had the cuts to crop insurance in the budget again, right? Um, And so, you know, the administration's been proposing crop insurance. The House bill that's currently ready for a House floor vote doesn't make any changes to crop insurance. Um, However, there has been uh, word that the the congressman that took over Mulvaney's seat um, in the House um, is potentially going to propose a bill or an amendment um, to make some changes to crop insurance. Um, obviously, like I said, the, the extreme right and the far right, you know, they're they're happy right now with the, the changes to the nutrition program, to some extent, not all the changes to the nutrition title, um, but they would also really like to make changes to the crop insurance program. Um, however, when doing that, you lose, some, you lose some representatives and senators that are in favor of the program. Uh, Pat Roberts, chairman of the, of the Senate Ag Committee, is a very big proponent of crop insurance, um, loves the program, is going to do anything he can to protect it. Um, and so he's, uh, you know, he's come out and said, we have to keep the program or I'm not going to vote for the bill. And and so uh, to say that crop insurance is going to make it through unscathed, I think is, you know, anybody's guess um, at this point. Because, as I mentioned, Congress can do whatever he wants and, and the bill could potentially change a lot between now and, and you know, when it eventually gets passed. But, um Crop insurance, like the nutrition program, face very similar hurdles. Um, the one difference might be that crop insurance has both sides of the aisle. Sometimes looking at it in, in a in a poor light, um, and so you know whatever happens, you'll you'll hear people also talk about I'm um, requiring drug testing for nutrition nutrition people, um, and that gets a lot of support in rural communities around the country. Um, however. Uh, urban legislators and democratic committee members and even Republican committee members for that or not committee members but legislators will come back and say okay if we're going to do drug testing for nutrition programs we also need to do drug testing for crop insurance recipients right and then they and then they come back and say well no no we didn't mean that and they kind of drop it and so we haven't had we haven't necessarily had that come forward yet on either side on nutrition or crop insurance but it's always something that's proposed until people realize okay uh, or until people suggest that they do the same for crop insurance and then people start backing off a little bit so um, I look for honestly. I look for crop insurance and nutrition programs that kind of get through. If I was if I was to take a stance, um, I think they both kind of make it through. Um, just on the on the philosophy that both sides um, have one great argument for their case, um, and and I say great because uh, uh, everybody seems to be very supportive of lessening the federal deficit um, and. Uh, the economy has recovered. Uh, people are back to work. Our unemployment rate is at the lowest. It, it I mean, we're at full employment at four um, percent unemployment rate, but. Uh, the program, the SNAP program, has cheapened. I mean, as people have gone to work, less people are in, enrolled in SNAP, the participants have gone down, the program's cheaper, right? So so proponents of the SNAP program, you know, will say, hey, we've cheapened our, our expense to the federal government. Um, crop insurance proponents have the same argument. Uh, corn is a heck of a lot cheaper to insure at $3.50 uh, instead of $6.50. And so the program expenses for crop insurance have also come down. Um, and so I think both sides make the argument, hey, we've cheapened our programs. It is now cheaper than what it was this last go around. We've got more people enrolled in the programs. Um, you know why are you picking on us? why are you why are you cutting our program and not the other and And so, um, depending on what happens in the conference committee, um, you know I, I could see both programs uh, making it through. so
1: I think that's good news for for a lot of people, yeah. Another topic that is on everyone's mind right now is trade. Could you give us a quick update on where we stand?
2: Yes, I feel like this has been my life the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, not to go into too much detail, but we are we are seeing a lot of uncertainty around trade. Uh, you know, both administrations when they're, or excuse me, both candidates, um, Secretary Clinton and Mr. Trump, when they were running for president, both of them came out very much against TPP, so they were going to pull us out of the, the transportation Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, which was a partnership with us and 11 other countries in the Pacific Rim. Uh, the big one, obviously, being Japan. Um, the access to the Japanese market, especially for beef, was going to be very, very beneficial for, for U.S. beef producers um, sticking true to his word, uh, President Trump pulled us out of the deal, and so you know we we don't have TPP. A couple of weeks ago, he made kind of some off-the-cuff remarks about possibly rejoining TPP, um, and then he kind of walked back from those. So there's there's one uncertainty, the one volley that I'm going to throw in the air is kind of the uncertainty around: are we going to rejoin TPP? Are we not? Are we going to stay out? Um, part of the part of the thing that really kind of came back to to bite us a little bit was. Everybody felt that, or I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people felt that the United States, if they pulled out a TPP, the rest of the deal would kind of dissolve, and that would open up the possibility for some of these multilater- or, uh, bilateral trade agreements that we hear talked about between two, you know, us and another country. Um, what ended up happening was the U.S. pulled out, and then the other 11 countries went ahead and ratified the deal. Um, and so that's that's major. I mentioned Japan, China's. This is outside. China's outside the TPP. They weren't a one of the eleven member countries, but Canada, Mexico, they were all part of the part of the process. Um, the countries went ahead and ratified. Uh, US beef producers face a, a very strong. Uh, tariff or tax, a tariff or tax um, for beef imports into, into the Japanese market. Um, Australia, uh, the the country's other major supplier of beef, uh, is a part of TPP and they they get reduced tariffs right so it gives them a competitive advantage to sell beef into the market. Um, and if, if the United States doesn't do a bilateral trade agreement or, or rejoin TPP, you know, we're gonna see our market share, especially in beef to Japan, continue to taper off um, just because we're, we're not as competitive. I mean, we can't be competitive when we're faced with a 25% tariff, and Australia and New Zealand you know, are, are at a far less tariff, or in, in some cases, zero tariffs. Um, and so that's, that's the first uncertainty I'm gonna throw out there about trade. The second thing is, is with the, the North American Free Trade Agreement with uh, the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Um, the agreement, NAFTA is actually three separate bilateral trade agreements all together as one. So it's an agreement, there's an agreement with the United States and Mexico there's one with the United States and Canada and there's one with Canada and Mexico but they're all kind of in a deal and, and there's there's a lot of issues around it um, NAFTA has been very good for agriculture since its enactment in the 90s and it's, it's uh, increased our trade to the countries, the flow of goods across the borders has increased for agriculture um, a couple of the big sticking points within NAFTA is related to Canada's dairy supply management. Um, so they they have lots of supply. They they. Hold the, the, they basically help inflate the price of milk in Canada, and some of those milk products come in the United States, which deflates our domestic milk price. Um, so that's one area of, of contention. Uh, there's contention around uh, automobile parts and how much of each car that trade that's traded across borders can pass without you know a tariff. How what the percentage breakdown of that is. Uh, there's disagreement about what those percentages. How much should come from the United States? How much from Mexico? How much from Canada? Um, and then the other thing is related to seasonal approaches for future vegetables with us in Mexico. Um, so, there's a, there's a, you know, a kind of a... During one of the negotiation talks with, with NAFTA, you know, Mexico had proposed during during peak growing seasons, we want to be able to sell into the market. Or we want to be able to limit, you know, the United States exports of tomatoes into Mexico during certain times of the year. And so, they had to work some of the, through those issues. And so, we keep hearing the administration say that they're getting close to a deal. Um, for corn and soybean producers in Ohio, I honestly, we had free trade already across the border, and so a new NAFTA is pro- really not going to change that picture. Um, but for dairy producers in the state, there could be a benefit um, to a new NAFTA. Um, obviously if, if we pull from NAFTA, uh, you know, then those tariffs for, for some of our corn and soybeans would go back into place and we'd see potentially less trade across the border. Um, and so a a deal is good. A deal is beneficial, uh, but we already have free trade, uh, with corn and soybeans. And so, uh, recouping that deal isn't going to change the picture a lot. Losing the deal, you know, would change it significantly. And then the third thing, well, I guess... Third thing, I'm gonna throw uh, Korean. So we have a, a free trade agreement with South Korea. Um, the deal is has been finalized, um, but it hasn't been signed yet. Uh, largely in part to help to bring North Korea um, back to a state of, of playing fair with others, and uh, and so it's the deals. Our understanding is done. It just hasn't been signed by the president yet, largely putting pressure on North Korea to come to the table as well. Um, so there's three. The fourth one, the big one that we've heard about in the news over and over again the last couple of weeks is related to China. Um, and, and currently the only tariffs that we have in place, uh, or the, currently the only Chinese tariffs are in place on, on agriculture, um, the big one being pork. Uh, so 25% on pork. Um, the day it was announced, we saw the markets jump down, we saw the markets, you know, uh, we lost about 60 cents in soybeans. Um, when people started to realize that this was all proposed and the tariffs weren't actually in place, we saw the markets start to come back. So we had about a 100 cents swing, 60 cents down, 40 cents back up in soybeans, 100 cents swing, that's pretty pretty significant day. Um, and the markets at least for soybeans have been kind of trading flat in the last couple of weeks. We've seen a rally in corn, uh, largely a couple of things driving that, higher uh, feed usage, uh, and then the drought in South America and Argentina has really kind of blustered some of our some of our corn markets. Um, but as far as as far as our trade with China and and where we could end up with that, um, you know, I have I have I'm I'm hopeful that um, the administration and and really the United States and China come to an agree a, a deal, uh, whatever type of deal there is, um, and these tariffs don't go into place. Uh, China is our number one soybean market, and they account for about thirty percent of our of our total soybean production. Um, if the tariffs go into place, my estimates are that it could drop to twenty percent or, or about one in five. Um, of our total production, so a pretty significant loss. We could see a drop in short-term prices around the world, um, and obviously we're, in some cases we're, we're close to you know cost of production for farms, and so you know, a drop in, in prices uh, of that magnitude would, would definitely have negative effects for, for producers. Um, and it really came, I, I kind of mentioned this earlier a little bit, one of the ways to cut low prices is, is to cut your supply. Um, And and this year, the last couple years, we've we've seen prices kind of continue down, but we haven't seen that adjustment on the supply side. We are still planting large amounts of soybean acreage, still planting large amounts of corn acreage across the country. Um, This year, when the planning report came out, we saw those. We got if you're a U.S. producer, we got what we wanted. We got the drought in South America. and not here in the United States yet, um, but we also had the decrease in acreage. Uh, we saw gains in cotton, we saw gains in in some sorghum, um, but we saw the reduced acreage in corn and soybeans, which put upward price pressure on corn and soybean prices um, with this tariff uncertainty in China, we've kind of lost some of that momentum i mean we're still we we're still trending up on corn, um, but we lost kind of some of that momentum and so um, in in terms of trade with China, I'm hopeful that we get a deal um, and these tariffs don't go into place. Um, but uh, you know if they do uh, we could see a drop in the short term uh, for for prices and farmers will have to adjust accordingly. I mean there's there's really there's there's nothing to do. The government could step in and provide some some payments uh, to help subsidize until we get back on stable footing. Uh, but I've heard, as I've traveled the state, one of the things I keep hearing over and over again from commodity groups and from farmers alike is, you know, we'd rather have free trade than, than program payments, than government payments. And so, um, I think the administration realizes that trade is important to the agriculture economy and, and they're going to continue to work on, on good, solid deals.
0: So. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully we do see that because that is important to us. Yeah. Um, any resources you'd like to share with our listeners?
2: Uh, in terms of markets, in terms of policy, or
0: um, your or website. I- and yeah, the yeah. The department so we
2: so- uh so in the Department of Agriculture, Environmental Development and Economics, uh we do try um, our best to provide market updates um and and we try to provide policy updates. We've got an article getting ready to come out around the tariffs and the trade. Um, it'll be really interesting to people we hope and kind of explain some of some of the challenges that they're being faced uh, with these tariffs in the short term. So um, if, if you're interested, it's AEDE at OSU.edu. Um, we also have a farm management page. And then the extension, honestly, the extension has a great website called the Farm Office where they put a lot of budgets and resources available to farmers, um, ag law and, and farm succession planning, along with a lot of the things that we talked today about policy and, and trade. So um, that's a good resource as well.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day yeah, thank to you this was great. all this to us.
1: And we appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Appreciate it.
1: Yep. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.